From Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C., this is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk highlights Hudson's work to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In each episode, we examine, in depth, a specific policy issue that affects the United States and our relationship with the world. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you like us, rate us. And now, today's topic. President Trump's election in 2016 shocked the political world because of how he upended the U.S. electoral map. States that had been seen solidly in the Democratic column, like Michigan and Pennsylvania, voted for a Republican in a presidential election for the first time since 1992. For Wisconsin, it was the first time since 1988. That Hillary Clinton didn't even visit Michigan to campaign showed that security Democrats felt about these states continuing to vote their way. But a lot happened in the world over those 24 years that affected these northern manufacturing-focused states. Politicians on both sides of the political aisle neglected brewing discontent as factories shut down and once vibrant middle-class communities eroded as jobs disappeared and social maladies like addiction and despondency took their place. Then-candidate Trump tapped into this growing dissatisfaction, running on a platform that acknowledged the concerns of these forgotten corners of America and promised to put American workers in the manufacturing sector first again in U.S. trade and economic policy. Now sitting in the Oval Office, President Trump has attempted to make good on his promises to rebuild America's manufacturing sector and to confront global trade partners and institutions that he believes are responsible for hollowing out America's middle class. On this episode of Policy Talk, we will discuss President Trump and how he has disrupted the status quo of both Republicans and Democrats on trade policy, how his more confrontational approach with countries such as China is working, and whether his recent announcement of a restructured NAFTA will help him fulfill his promises to millions of Americans hoping for a revitalized manufacturing sector. To share his insights on these topics, we are joined today by Hudson Senior Fellow Tom Dusterberg. Prior to joining Hudson in 2017, Dr. Dusterberg was Executive Director of the Manufacturing and Society in the 21st Century Program at the Aspen Institute. From 1999 to 2011, he served as president and CEO of the Manufacturers Alliance, an economic research and executive education organization based in Virginia. During the George H.W. Bush administration, he served as assistant secretary for international economic policy at the U.S. Department of Commerce. He also has extensive congressional experience, serving as chief of staffs to both Representative Chris Cox and Senator Dan Quayle. He co-wrote U.S. Manufacturing, The Engine of Growth in a Global Economy, and three other books, and is the author of over 150 articles in journals and major newspapers. He is a regular contributor to Forbes. He also serves on the Board of Advisors of the Manufacturing Public Policy Initiative at Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs. He received a bachelor's degree from Princeton University and completed his master's and Ph.D. at Indiana University. Tom, we appreciate you joining us on Policy Talk. It's a great pleasure. So I thought we'd start out by uh, giving a little history. Um, We all know that that President Trump, at the time candidate Trump, made trade and rebuilding America's industrial sector a major part of his 26th campaign. Um, And and now, you know, has really carried that on into his – into his administration. Can you share with us, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners if you could share with us, what was the, what was he responding to? We all know he's a disruptor. What was the, 
the status quo in 2016 that he felt the need to really move in and threaten NAFTA, uh, shake up the international trade agreements in, in America's industrial sector. Well, let me uh, perhaps start with a little bit of historical background. Um, the United States is a trading nation and has been since its founding. And uh, contrary to what a lot of people think, uh, it has been a a history of going back and forth between what some call protectionism and some call free trade. Um, In the early years of the republic, um, we were more interested in acquiring technology uh, at the time. Alexander Hamilton was a great proponent of that. but the South and the North developed into two different economies, and this was part of the background for the Civil War. Right, the the yeah. South was an exporter of uh, uh, cotton, tobacco, uh, other crops. Agriculture. That, agriculture. And the North was the industrializing part and wanted to be protected, and it was protected pretty much throughout the 19th century. Um, into the 20th century, it sort of vacillated back and forth between uh, protectionism and uh, – um, free trade, but w- in the Great Recession, there was a uh, very famous law called the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act uh, that instituted pretty systematic uh, protection for all sectors of the economy, and many attribute that law to deepening the the recession. Well, some of the uh, forward-looking thinkers in the during the Second World War, especially the uh, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, uh, recognized that economic disruption was a, between the two wars was a great cause of, of of the disruption, and so they pledged to try to form a uh, more uh, free trade-oriented international uh, global economic order. Which they did. They founded. This what, is coming out of World War II. Coming out of World War II, they uh, founded what became the World Trade Organization. It was called the uh, GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, until 1994. And so the United States uh, was a proponent, uh, became a proponent, a strong proponent of free trade. And part of the object of the exercise was to help uh, rebuild uh, the economies of nations that were defeated by us, especially the Japanese and the Germans, um, because there was a great fear of them going uh, going communist, basically. And so uh, the free trade regime uh, lasted really for uh, from 1948 when the GATT was founded uh, up until the pretty much the Trump administration. But uh, Germany and Japan and other countries rapidly recovered from the devastation of the war and became great competitors. And the United States became a net debtor nation in the sense that we had a a trade deficit uh, of pretty substantial proportions that started to grow way back in the 1970s. Um, and by the time uh, the, the uh, 21st century came around, we were pretty se- severe debtor. And that caused uh, economic disruption, especially in the industrialized parts of the country. And even though we continued to um, promote and, and sign free trade agreements and expanded the, the realm of free trade, even letting China into the World Trade Organization, 
uh, reducing our tariffs with uh, the Chinese, the Koreans, uh, as well as the Japanese, the Germans, the Europeans. They, they were all good competitors. And so uh, a lot of people started uh, really in the 21st century and especially after the Great Recession of 2007-2008 started to notice that uh, the industrialized parts of the country were losing jobs. We lost six million manufacturing jobs between 2000 and uh, 2010 or so. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of discontent in the, uh, the areas of the country, especially the upper Midwest, but also including the Southwest, the Southeast, um, and others. And uh, Trump was uh, very uh, prescient and uh, politically sensitive and recognized that people were blaming the, the, the free trade system for a large part of the woes uh, that they felt. Well, that's because, that's because they could physically see we used to make televisions here, and now they're being made in Japan and in China. We used to make, uh, we used to manufacture, uh, you know, linens or, or, or uh, other sort of industrial pro- products, and they, you can actually see those jobs leave your town and then you see those things being sold at Walmart with uh, made in China label on them, correct? I mean, this is a, it's a very clear thing for people to notice. And it's a, a very specific part of the population that was uh, primarily affected by that, i.e. people without a college education for the most part who worked in factories and right. could, could have decent jobs and, uh, you know, incomes that were, uh, could support a family. We saw all that breaking down um, steadily over the course of 20 or 30 years. And again, Trump saw that and decided he would want to do something about it. There's a sort of a second factor, which is uh, our uh, national defense capabilities are integrally tied with our uh, superiority in technology and in manufacturing. And that has started to erode. And uh, lots of people started to notice that as well. Okay. So Trump uh, campaigned very effectively uh, as wanting to revive uh, the U.S. manufacturing sector. And uh, he ripped up some trade agreements such as NAFTA. He pulled out of a free trade agreement uh, that would have united uh, a bunch of Pacific Rim nations um, it's the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Trans-Pacific Partnership. Right. Uh, and has proceeded to uh, rene- renegotiate uh, NAFTA and um, uh, take a bunch of actions to um, uh, focused on, especially on China, but also other uh, nations that uh, continue to have significant trade surpluses with us. So you, you've actually laid out a lot of things I want to talk about over the next half hour or so. So let's, we'll come back to each of those. I want to start with trade deficits. Can you explain what a – we often hear about trade deficits, and can you explain what that actually means and why it's either an important marker of, of your nation's economic strength or maybe it isn't? Well, I would say that it, it is important, but it's probably exaggerated. A trade deficit is when simply – the um, products coming into the country um, outweigh, in, ter- in economic terms, the products that we export uh, to other countries. One thing is uh, frequently forgotten is that uh, the services, such as tourist services or 
professional services like accounting or um, business consulting services uh, are also counted in these numbers. And it's a little known fact, but true, that we have a, a large trade surplus in the in services yeah. sector. So the deficit, which reached six, $700 billion at its peak uh, overall, was... Is that per year? Per year. With all the other nations in the world. With, with every nation and, and including services where we have a surplus again. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's completely centered in the goods producing sector. And which goods drive that? Is it consumer goods? And I mean, I know Amer- is America net, I presume we're a net uh, producer of, let's say, agricultural products, wheat, uh, dairy, things like that. Are, is that the case, though? It's clearly yeah, we- not the case for uh, uh, other areas. Can you kind of walk through a few of the, the key ones? Well, the key ones uh, in where we're in deficit are automobiles is the, the biggest, um, coming in from Germany, Japan, uh, Korea now. Um, traditionally, we've been a big importer of oil um, yeah. and other, f- well, natural gas as well. But in recent years, that has started to turn around, and we are getting closer to balance in terms of uh, – Oil. Agriculture, we've always been a surplus nation. Uh, we'll talk, I'm sure, about uh, Trump's tariffs on yeah, uh, yeah. China, which has resulted in a change in that circumstance. Um, consumer goods, almost all gone to, to China. It's hard to find a television. It's hard to find... Uh, Your most iPhone, of, most of the uh, iPhone, electronics we use. Are uh, electronics, economy. clothes... Um, Lots of luxury goods, um, plus the clothes that normal people wear and buy at Walmart. Uh, yeah. We're in deep deficit in all of those categories. So why is that problematic? Is there? I mean, there's a couple of ways we can take this. I, obviously, I personally think that, and I, I know many writers and agree with this, and including a, one you recently pointed me to, Orrin Cass, on the importance of work, that, that as people work, it gives them you know, it gives you human dignity. It gives you a purpose in life. Um, uh, so having those abili- the ability to manufacture things here is more than just erasing a trade deficit, is it not? Is it also not helping um, our communities and, and strengthening the institutions, whether it be families or, or what have you, that, that need that? Well, um, th- that is a big problem that you put your finger on. Um, the, the types of jobs that people who are uh, for one reason or another, don't want to go to college, are not prepared to go to college, don't think it's worth their while. Um, those types of jobs um, are what have been impacted the most by the trade deficit because people who don't acquire a college education uh, go into uh, not only producing products but servicing products. I mean, servicing right. automobiles or uh, televisions, electronics, whatever. And that has, uh, there's a lot of research that indicates that it has contributed greatly to the uh, sort of social disintegration that uh, Charles Murray and Oren Cass and others have, have pointed out. And you yourself know the uh, epidemic of uh, drug use right. 
which is so devastating in uh, rural areas. A lot of those areas are traditional manufacturing areas. Yeah, you're seeing, you see that when you look at the overlay, it's it's very clear that communities were, were uh, they've gone, gone in economic hard times because factories have closed. Um, instead of folks finding other productive means, often the drug dealers move in and, and things become People become despondent. There's not a purpose um, in their lives that focuses them in the way that it once did. And it's clearly an issue. It's clearly something that Trump tapped into in a lot of these communities that were that had largely been overlooked, I I think, over the over the last few election cycles, as we're being told of the merits of free trade. And there are definitely merits to free trade, but there's also a cost, and I think that's been exposed a little bit more. Well, on that. Uh, both political parties for the last 20, 25 years have um, pretty much ignored the, the, the deeper social costs, of, um, which are partly due to free trade policies. But let me just point out, too, that there's a purely economic uh, cost to uh, uh, sustained trade deficits. I mean, it's great to have lower price products coming in and right. lots of consumer choice. But every time we have a trade deficit, then capital moves outside of the uh, country and income that could have been uh, accumulated in the United States um, disappears. Right. And so... Uh, Which is why you're seeing such a growth in the middle class and China and, and, and upper middle class, that, that capital's moved there, correct? Uh, it has, and the debt accumulated in the United States and you know the annual income that um, goes into the U.S. economy gradually erodes if we're not producing anymore. Right. You're here, some of the solutions that we've heard to this have become a little more mainstream um, now, which would have sounded... I don't know, a little on the fringe just a few years ago or something like a universal basic income proposal uh, that instead of providing, you know, jobs and, and helping to encourage uh, industrial work here in America, instead, hey, let's just give folks a basic income. We're a wealthy enough nation. Um, have you contemplated those at all? Well, somewhat. Um, I'm firmly in the camp. You mentioned Orrin Cass, but others is that a preferable policy is to try to create more jobs in the United States and decent jobs. And a large part of the Trump trade policy, and we can get into some mm -hmm. details if you want, is designed exactly to encourage production in the United States as opposed to outside the United States. Right. Um, and He's been criticized for, uh, Trump has been criticized for economic illiteracy and just saying we need to reverse the trade uh, deficit. Um, but there, there is a, a, you know, a deeper uh, purpose behind that, which is creating jobs here in this country. And he, he very explicitly campaigned on that. And his trade policy is all designed um, really more to try to induce production in the United States uh, even more than simply reversing the, the trade deficit. Good. Yeah, no, let's, let's get into that. Um, so if, if there was a, you know, if there was a, uh, an overview of, of what the Trump trade policy is and kind of a theme, what, what would you – a lot of folks have said it's protectionist, it's, it's you know, closing America off. Uh, 
those are the critics. Uh, maybe you can give your perspective on on what that trade view is and and hit some of the high points. We can get into that. Okay, there there are a lot of elements to it. Um, one, there are unfair trade practices being perpetrated by lots of countries. I mean, China is the is the prime example. They subsidize production. Um, they steal our technology. They force American companies to give them technology, um, and Part of the, uh, his policy is to try to uh, get them to uh, actually practice free trade and the right. rules, uh, adhere to the rules of the World Trade Organization, of which they are a member. So and, uh, are they – people hear this all the time. How are they not obeying those rules? Or are, You hear that China steals intellectual property, that they don't prevent counterfeit products. They, What are some of the things they're doing that – to disobey the WTO, and, and how is Trump holding them accountable? Well, he's holding them accountable by imposing tariffs and an increasing amount of tariffs on an increasing range of the goods that we import from China. But the f- factors that you, you mentioned, counterfeiting, stealing of technology, are somewhat rampant. Um, the, the more difficult problem is subsidies uh, under Xi Jinping, China has gone more and more to gone back to, if you will, production by state-owned enterprises, and both at the national level, the Beijing level, and the local level, major cities, all want to have uh, create jobs in their own areas. So there's huge subsidies being right. given to current production, and what China wants to do looking ahead, and they have this program called Made in China 2025, is they want to start to dominate high technology industries. And so they're putting substantial amounts of money into robotics, uh, airline, airliner construction, um, semiconductors, uh, other high technology industries. And these are things that American companies have been manufacturing there in their factories, correct? We still, so they have kind of a jump on us if they're... Well, they, they're trying to... It's an unlevel playing field. Right. We're ahead in most of those technologies that go into those industries, but China is systematically pumping money in, into their own production and doing whatever they can to acquire the technology from us and from the Europeans and the Japanese, for that matter, as well. So Trump has announced these tariffs. You want to talk a little about what he specifically did and and whether you think it'll be successful or is it even a drop in the bucket on what needs to happen with China? Well, it's uh, certainly got the attention of of the Chinese. Um, What's been our posture for the last, I mean, maybe just summarize our posture with the Chinese for the last 20 years and how is, why did it get their attention? The past 40 years, even, we had the, the idea that was pretty widely shared that if we allowed China into the World Trade Organization, their economy would have to adapt in a free market direction. And we also assumed that uh, because of that, their political system would evolve into a more liberal, more democratic-oriented uh, political system. Right. Well, ne- neither of those has really worked. Um, and so uh, imposing tariffs Um, on a massive scale, at least gets the Chinese to the table, it's going to be very difficult uh, to get them to change the underlying structure 
they've um, built up for the for their economy. You mean internally the structure, or, or the structure they built up within the WTO framework? No, in, internally. I mean this the system of uh, relying on state-owned enterprises, the system of um, heavy subsidies, um, the system of making it difficult for foreign companies to operate uh, in China. All of those things are going to be on the table, and it's going to be it's going to be hard to uh, get them to change. Yeah. Um, what what area has there been when he he did this? What area? Do we see promise in? Is there anything, or is it? Well, yeah, I, it, what concessions did they have? They at least offered. Uh, Chinese have offered um, so far to um, perhaps buy more agricultural products and buy more energy products. So, uh, U.S. is starting to produce massive amounts of natural gas and export liquefied natural gas. Right. Uh, if they bought more of those, they could contribute to reducing the trade deficit, but it wouldn't do any good uh, really for the advanced technology industries that uh, we're worried about losing. And again, <clears throat> there's a national security implication sure. to that. What? Oh, go ahead. No. Well, I, I just might mention an ancillary part, a connected part of the Trump trade policy is enhancing – uh, the economics of producing in the United States, and I would cite the the, the tax bill that was passed right. last year, lowered corporate taxes, went to a territorial system uh, of taxation so that um, that equal equalized the playing field with other nations who basically don't pay any tax on what they make in the United States. Right. And we went in that direction. And the second thing is the, the massive regulatory reform program that uh, Trump has uh, instituted and carried out uh, really quite successfully. Those things make it easier. Incentivize and, manufacturing and, in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, uh, just make it easier to, to operate, uh, more profitable to operate. Uh, mm -hmm. The animal spirits, if you will, of um, creating new businesses – and expanding existing businesses have been enhanced by, by all that. So that's um, really part of the same policy of revitalizing uh, the industrial yes. sector and addressing the, the problems that the social and that, uh, problems that we talked about earlier. That's great. Um, just to kind of wrap up the discussion on China, then I want to turn to North America and some of the things he's done here. Who who are our, are we? Do we have European allies in the in the uh, Chinese trade disputes here? I mean, this is something, th their behavior affects every nation of the world. Are there others that are kind of taking Trump's lead and thinking, all right, finally someone's being the leader here, will join you? Or is he kind of out on an island by himself? Well, it's a mixture. Um, Trump didn't really help himself in U.S. policy by imposing steel uh, and aluminum tariffs right. and his threats of auto tariffs uh, based on um, kind of a dubious justification that it would impair national security has angered a lot of our traditional allies. But that being said, um, the German auto industry, for instance, and the Japanese auto industry, for that matter, are, are uh, existentially threatened by uh, Chinese uh, development of their own industry and their right. 
totally focused on the electric car market. So uh, that and the, the, the general overall um, uh, capture of markets by the Chinese has affected the, the Europeans, uh, the Japanese pretty significantly. And so you're starting to see more awareness, both in Europe and in Japan, Korea, Australia. Um, and there are things going on at the World Trade Organization where we are getting support from uh, our traditional allies. And there's a process, for instance, to reform the World Trade Organization, and what that really means is adapt it to the, the challenge of China. Right. Because it was all set up before they were even a blip on the economic uh, radar, and, and now they are a behemoth that needs to be Yeah, going. for instance, there, there are no real rules that adequately cover state-owned enterprise and subsidies to state-owned enterprises. There's no adequate rules for some of the, the um, uh, new technology sectors like uh, the uh, Internet, uh, Internet of Things, right. um, social media, uh, and we need rules there, and China's active in all of those areas. So there, there's an ongoing process uh, where uh, Europe, Japan, and the United States are working closely together to develop new rules in the World Trade Organization that are really specifically addressed at China. That's good. Well, we've seen the Chinese stock market weaken over the last couple of months since uh, President Trump made these these threats. It it it'll you know it's left to be seen whether uh, since their state-owned enterprise system is going to be affected by that. But there is some uh, there is pressure there, and the people are feeling it, and their new middle and upper middle class uh, like their lifestyles and probably want to maintain them. So. Uh, China has its own internal issues they've got to deal with as well. They, they do, and, and the, the uh, actions that Trump has taken so far have affected China. Right. You mentioned the stock market, but the economy is growing at a pace, uh, I think, the slowest since the Great Recession right now. Right. And one, many people speculate that you know, the, the, the main objective of Xi Jinping to is to maintain the Communist Party in power, and if they can't create, keep creating jobs and sustaining a middle-class lifestyle, it's a problem for yeah, them. No, so, it so it, it's starting to have an impact. There, there is, you know, on on the one hand, the Thomas Friedmans of the world will love a command and control economy that you have in a in a China, but you also there's threats. It's it's not as diversified and and. Um, dominoes can begin to fall. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, let's turn to uh, North America and, and NAFTA. Uh, now, the new trade agreement that Trump announced in recent weeks. Um, give us a little backstory. You were at the uh, uh, Treasury in, as an assistant secretary as NAFTA was being negotiated. And, and um, you know, how did we get from where we were then? Was it a good deal then? And why did Trump feel the need to shake things up, and is this going to be a benefit to the U.S. and, and our manufacturing sector? Uh, minor correction, I was at the Commerce Department. Oh, I'm but sorry. But we were, we were, we were <laughs> I in, knew that. intimately involved in those, <laughs> those ne- negotiations I, as well. My apologies. Um, it was, uh, on the whole, I think uh, NAFTA was a success. It united the North American economies. 
it really did help Mexico a lot. Um, and Canada is, their economy is, it's like a 20 or a 51st state. Right. Really, they're so... Um, Apologies to our Canadian listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Tr- true. Pardon me for that. But, you know, economically... Yeah, I understand what you're talking 20% about. 20% of everything that they produce in Canada is exported to the United States. Yeah. Um, the problem that Trump saw um, mostly was associated with the auto sector. Uh, the U.S. auto sector is totally integrated with Canada and with right. increasingly with Mexico. And again, he, he wanted to reverse the outflow of factories and jobs, especially to, to Mexico. Another problem was that um, the rules of NAFTA allowed uh, parts producers, for instance, in China to ship stuff to Mexico that was then put in American cars or washing machines or that were sold in the United States. So it was a little leaky. Um, and Trump, he really wants to shake things up anyway. Um, and uh, we do have a trade deficit with uh, Mexico. We're a little more balanced with, with Canada, but a pretty big one with Mexico. Right. And so he wanted to reverse that. The, the main... Um, Is it manufactured goods that drive that? I, I mean, they're, they're, they have energy there, but I assume we export a lot of energy to them. And we actually export energy to Mexico. Yeah. We import from Canada. Okay. Um, Tar sands and... Right, right. Um, so the main impact of the new agreement, uh, again, is um, pretty clearly to try to uh, incentivize moving production back to the United States and also in, uh, to prevent third parties like China or others from using Mexico as a gateway to the United States. So they're, they're very kind of esoteric um, rules that they put in place that you know, X percent, uh, 70 some percent of uh, the, everything that goes into a car that is exported from Canada or Mexico to the United States has to be um, made in the three countries. Okay. And the second aspect. So you uh, can't have things made in China, brought to Mexico, assembled there, and then brought to the U.S. Is that uh, what it's trying to get around? It, it, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not totally barred, but only a small percentage right. can go in. And another major uh, new rule um, is that uh, 40 to 45 percent of the uh, parts going into a car in Mexico have to be made with labor that is paid at least $15 an hour. Okay. Uh, whereas now uh, the average wage in a Mexican auto or auto parts plant is closer to $5. So that is going to be a big change, and that will be, I think, an incentive. To bring some things home. Bring some stuff home, or at least not to send more uh, to Mexico. Right. right. There's some other, you know, obscure rules having to do with how disputes are settled um, that were put in place in this agreement, and they're all designed to... um, discourage um, produ- moving production outside the country. The, 
Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer thinks that some of the rules we've had um, amount to an insurance policy for U.S. companies to produce outside the country, and he's determined to reverse that, and they did in the So a lot of this is incentivizing U.S. companies to stay. It it was also opening up some – I understand that the Canadians had some pretty uh, good restrictions on their dairy sector that uh, Trump went after. Is that – that, that that's true. It's it's a long-standing dispute. Um, he got made some progress, but I, uh, I I think if you looked at the overall trade, uh, it doesn't amount to a lot. Okay. And for better or for worse, we have to understand that the U.S. dairy industry also enjoys a fair amount of protection. Yeah, absolutely. So as does our sugar industry. There's many that uh, sugar. Yep. So we so but this sought to kind of uh, rejigger the, this agreement. Um, Trump saw it as a as a huge victory, and and uh, because frankly, folks thought, "Good grief, you're going to cancel NAFTA and open it up, not a chance." And he was able to do that. Uh, now there still has to be these agreements have to be passed in in Canada and Mexico, but it sounds like um, it. it seems reasonable that it could happen. So is this a is this more of a symbolic victory for him that I will go after the these trade agreements where I think America is being treated unfairly or do you think it'll have genuine economic impact? I think the economic impact will be positive but not huge. The other thing that uh, the Trump administration is determined uh, to do and one of the reasons they started with um, redoing NAFTA is they wanted to set a template for new rules um, that they could uh, try to get into agreements with other countries. And they're very explicit about that. Um, We now have opened negotiations with the Japanese and with the Europeans. and we will, we've announced that we will uh, negotiate with the British when they get out of the European Union. So um, there are some elements in the agreement, such as the rules of origin, um, but also um, there's a whole chapter on digital trade, which gets a lot of the, um, solves a lot of the issues that have been brewing for a long time. And I, we, I don't think we want to get into the details, right. but it would be helpful. Sounds like another podcast. <laughs> trade. We could talk for trade. Uh, talk about it, trade for hours and but, days. Uh, it, it's if implemented globally, it would solve a lot of problems and a lot of disadvantages that American firms have in the highest technology areas. Okay. And also, there's some good uh, improvements in intellectual property protection that is important to high technology, but also the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Great. Let's let's talk. You talked earlier and mentioned. I want to go back to it. Talk about our uh, our defense industrial complex and and the issues that are related there. Talk about what Trump. Uh, first of all, give us a little overview of the issue, and then talk about what uh, President Trump has done uh, to rectify the the issues. Well, I mean, we all know, and we saw it in the Second World War, that uh, the, the American arsenal of democracy, as it was called, the superiority of our ability to produce 
equipment was probably would allow allowed us to win a f- two front war. Um, as time has gone on, uh, technology has um, been introduced that is totally changing the defense uh, industrial um, outlook. We need high technology communications, uh, electronics, uh, aerospace equipment. Um, a lot of that technology is now um, uh, moving to China, Korea, uh, Japan, Europe, and are these companies that are? When you say it's moving to, how how is it physically happening? Is it American companies it, manufacturing these things there because it's it, cheaper, or is it uh, companies in these countries? that are, are getting an advantage on us in the actual technology Well, it's, it's both. I mean, for instance, the, the Germans are very good at robotics, for instance, and uh, Japanese are very good at semiconductors. Their own companies have developed these technologies. They are our allies and hopefully will continue to be allies. But China is increasingly becoming uh, a good producer of a lot of this equipment, and it's partially aided by you know, number one, company, American companies like the uh, cell phone makers mm-hmm. and a lot of electronics makers moving to China. There's also, you know, a question of industrial espionage. Going espionage, on. right? Um, but China's um, China's very uh, cagey and good about uh, some other uh, types of um, production. Uh, that are important to the national defense sector. For instance, in nuclear energy, we pretty much don't have uh, much of an industry anymore. Um, right. We don't mine much uranium. Uh, China has moved into that territory by picking up mines in um, Australia and other places. They don't have any domestic mines that they've discovered? I think they have some, but they don't have huge resources in uranium. Right. Uh, there are esoteric metals, so-called rare earths, that are important in a lot of electronic equipment. They're important in guided missiles. They're important um, for night vision technology. Uh, And China has pretty much cornered the world market. A lot of those are in Africa. And, you know, the Washington Post a few months ago, maybe it was last year, did an expose. And just the photos alone told you uh, the devastation that, that that industry is is having in some communities when it's just kind of done ad hoc. So uh, well, they they've bought off a lot of yeah. The Chinese have moved into those areas and it, with a lot of money. It sounds it, like it, there's another interesting one um, that we need to watch. It's not only defense related but economically important is cobalt, right? Which is a key ingredient in batteries. And so if we're going to have electric... Well, these rechargeable, all the, the new batteries yeah, that we're using now. Yeah, and uh, lithium as well, yeah. I guess. And the Chinese Chinese have something like 70 or 80% of global production of cobalt they control now. Okay. So getting back to the defense industrial base, right. you know, it's the technology, it's materials that they have, um, that have eroded in, in the United States. So um, the Department of Defense just a few weeks ago put out a, a good report on all of these developments. And um, 
it's going to be used, this report, to guide trade policy and a policy of um, allowing or not allowing uh, foreign acquisition of American companies based on the defense-related technologies that are included. Had that slackened off in recent years? It had been it just almost totally ignored right? Right. for 20, 30, 40 years, frankly. Uh, and Trump uh, and his team have have given new life to that. And it's, 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 it's very Is it important. too late or is it uh, – it sounds like well, a lot of the cows are out of the barn. Some are. I'm not a particularly an expert on, right. the, on the various technologies, but – uh, better late than never. No, and it's yeah. There's new technologies always coming online. Yeah. And, okay. Um, so just to kind of wrap up, where has do you see Trump in in these four years he, he has an office and you know possibly eight? But let's just talk about the four he has now, uh, making a huge impact and having a lasting legacy. Or is are people waiting him out and the system will go back to the the way it was once before? I don't think the system will go back to where it was before. Um, the uh, problems, um, sort of the sociological problems that resulted from loss of uh, our productive capacity aren't going to go away. And I, I, I think he's changed the equation and forced people on both sides of the aisle to pay attention to that. Right. I think that will continue. Um, his critique of the World Trade Organization and of China is, again, something that, that is long overdue and um, is beginning to have resonance not only um, in the United States in both parties but around the world. You're seeing Germany and Japan wake up, Australia, right. uh, many others. Um, and this effort to change the World Trade Organization rules, I think, has a lot of legs. Um, the more negative side of the, the Trump agenda, you know, the sort of indiscriminate imposition of tariffs on friend and foe alike, right. like, for instance, on steel. Um, Doesn't win you a lot of friends as you're pushing these bigger it, battles, it, I it gets, I think it gets in the way of the of the overall agenda. Uh, hopefully we can overcome that. And there is evidence in recent months of movement in that regard. We are negotiating now with the Europeans and the Japanese, and they're slowly joining us in the, the battle against China. So, Well, when you, when you look back at the electrical map, a lot of the old Rust Belt steel you know, hauling out steel industry towns are are where he got a lot of his votes. And he went to those places in a way that, that other candidates had ignored from both parties for, for years. And and his message resonated with him, and that, that's what put him over the top. So he probably feels he has to, you know, or I think he believes it, um, but he needs to, to uh, be accountable for the things that he said and, and push the policies there. Uh, hopefully it will have a positive impact on that. You've heard some stories that some of these tariffs are actually having a negative impact. Um, but but these are huge macroeconomic issues that I think will take time to play out. It'll take a, a long while to, for them to play out, as you say. Um, Trump is willing, though, to take some hits. Um, and tariffs do have a negative impact, I mean, right. on the farm sector, yep. for instance. Um 
in the short run, and hopefully in the long run, they will help to produce the results that Trump is is after. So the the jury is still out on that. Are there any? We understand these giant trade agreements like TPP. He's kind of stepped away from and has talked more about doing one-on-one agreements with with countries. You know, doing deals as as the author of the art of the deal would want to do. Uh, do you see any of those that are going to come to fruition soon? Uh, not in the way that um, we would have seen 10, 20 years ago. I mean, it was the free trade agreement with the Europeans, the so-called TTIP and the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, were both multilateral. They were important for a lot of reasons, economic and political. I don't think we're going to see those under Trump. He just, he... As you said, he thinks he's the master of the deal, and if anybody's in the room with the United States, we have a natural advantage because we're still the biggest economy in the world. China's right. nipping at our heels, and I mean, I think we need help with China. Yeah. I, I don't think they're going to give in just in a bilateral with us. Right. Um, but he clearly believes that with everybody else. He can get at least some of what he wants in a bilateral context. Great. Well, this is, as I said, we could talk about trade for hours, and we hope to have you back um, as some of these you know, trade issues uh, to focus on them. But, but it's been great having you today, and we appreciate your, your knowledge and, and hope you can come back. Thanks very much, and I look forward to hearing from our, our listeners. We do appreciate our listeners and want to thank them for downloading our podcast today and for being subscribers of Policy Talk. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do and tell your friends about us. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. From all of us here at Hudson Institute, we appreciate you joining us, and thank you for listening. I'm Brian Blake. Good day.